We are in a series, uh, we, we generally work through books of the Bible here, we're in a series uh, in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be reading this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 13. You can find that text printed for you in your bulletin. When I was a sophomore in college, my mother was diagnosed uh, with a disease, disease called Cushing's disease. Now, you're probably not familiar with this disease, but the, the basic cause of it was a non-malignant tumor in her pituitary gland, and they needed to remove this. And so she went to Emory Hospital in Atlanta, and they had to do kind of a pre-surgical procedure where they go into your head to pinpoint the exact location uh, of this tumor before they do the actual surgery to remove it. So early one morning, my dad called me. It was 5 or 5.30 Uh, and told me that while they were doing this procedure, my mom had suffered a stroke. Um, She she recovered. It was was kind of a long deal, but she eventually recovered. But what I remember so much about that morning was was my dad crying on the phone because my dad was just like, he he doesn't cry. We're a very stoic family. Um, he, he He didn't cry a whole lot. I just remember him breaking down on the phone, and it was one of those messages that really shook me. And you, you've received messages like that. Messages have the power to shake us. Other messages we receive have the power to break us down. Uh, being told in some way or the other over and over that you're not smart enough or attractive enough or athletic enough or cool enough or, or, or whatever, that, that tears down our, <clears throat> our self-image over time. It almost imprisons us in a way to what other people have said about us. And then there are messages that encourage us. Um, I always remember the maid in, in the movie, The Help, who would say over and over to the little girl whose parents did not encourage her. She would say, you as kind, you as smart, you as important. And she was speaking words of encouragement to, to rewire that little girl's self-image. And then there are messages that quite literally set us free. I mean, just think simply of being a slave and hearing the words of the Emancipation Proclamation read for the first time and how that would affect you. Uh, Messages can shake us. They can break us down. uh, They can build us up. They can even free us because words are a very powerful thing. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to think about the words. We're going to think about the message that Paul took to the church in Thessalonica, the the same message that we have today in the Bible, and we're going to talk about what kind of message that really is, and why it's so important, and what kind of power it has. So look with me in the scriptures, 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 13, this is the word of God. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. 
Let me pray for us. Father, um, thank you for the opportunity this morning to proclaim this good news that um, Paul proclaimed to the Thessalonians. Thank you that, that we get to hear this same message. Uh, Father, I pray that you would cause your word indeed to work uh, with power in us this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So let me ask this kind of first of all, what is this message that Paul brought to the Thessalonians? Uh, early in, earlier in chapter 2, he referred to the message that he brought as the gospel of God. The good news of God, the good news from God. Paul and Timothy and Silas uh, had come into the town of Thessalonica. They had come into a city that has as many gods as we have flavors of ice cream. And they had proclaimed in that city that there is one God who made the world and everything in it. And he's a good God. And the reason, though, that, that this world is so messed up, the reason that every generation inherits a broken world that they cannot fix, no matter how many hours of community service we put into trying to, to fix it, is because individually and collectively, we don't want this good God to rule over us. We want to do our own thing. We want to go our own way. The, the Bible's word for this is, is sin. And this sin, though, that we think is going to bring us what we want, never in the long run brings us that. It brings death and decay and heartache and pain. And so we live in this world that's actually under the condemnation of a good yet just God. It's like we're living in a burning building and God could have justly walked away from it. But instead, the gospel tells us that God wanted to do something about this. That God sent His Son into the world to rescue us from the brokenness of the world. To, to, to rescue people from the burning building, as it were. And Jesus does this by taking the wrath, of, wrath and curse of God that's due to us for sin upon Himself at the cross. He stands in our place so that for all who believe in him and take shelter in that cross, the wrath of God is actually turned away from them. Our sins are forgiven. Our guilt and our shame are removed. We are freed to have a relationship with this good God once again. And God has given proof that he found what Jesus did acceptable by raising him from the dead. So Paul is proclaiming this good news that Jesus has died and Jesus is risen for you so that you can know this God. Now, what kind of message is that? What's the, what's the nature of that message? Uh, there were traveling philosophers in Paul's day who went around saying all kind of crazy stuff uh, just, just to make some money. Is, is that what Paul's doing here? Uh, there's a scene in one of, my, one of my favorite movies, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, where George Clooney and I forget the other guy's name, Derbert or Dillwood or something. He and this other guy, they run into John Goodman who's playing a traveling Bible salesman. And John Goodman convinces them, hey, if you give me some of your money, I'm going to be able to make you a lot of money selling helping me sell Bibles. So they go out and sit down under a tree to talk about it. Uh, and, and John Goodman says, you really got to know two things. He says, you got to know how to find a good Bible wholesaler and you got to be able to recognize a customer and how to address him. 
And George Clooney says, well, I, I think I'm pretty good at doing that. And he says, I know you are. That's why I've got to give you the advanced tutorial. And then John Goodman, who's called Big John in the movie, breaks a tree limb off. And he just smacks both of them upside the head. And lays them out and takes their money and leaves. He was just a, a huckster, a, a con guy. Is, is that all Paul's doing? Is he just, ah, yeah, Jesus, all this stuff, and and really he just wants to make a buck. Or for those of you who are Harry Potter fans, is this message just like an article out uh, of the Daily Prophet? Harry's crazy, Dumbledore's off his rocker, but Voldemort's not really back. Is it just so much fake news? What's What's the nature of the message that Paul's bringing? Uh, Verse 5 and verse 6, he says, we thank God constantly for this, not in verse 5, verse 6, I don't want to say that. Uh, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And so Paul says, this message that we've given you is the word of God. You heard it from us. It was our message, but it wasn't simply our message. We were relaying God's message. This good news about Jesus is actually a message from God. Uh, Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter. Uh, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is saying, this is not fake news. We are not just trying to make a buck. We're not making this up. We're not in error about this. This is actually a message from God. It's God's message. Now, what do you do with a message like that? Uh, Flannery O'Connor has a, a character called the misfit in her story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Uh, and he says this, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, and he shouldn't have done it. He'd thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. No pleasure but meanness. See, if, if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, if, if he, he didn't do the things that the Bible records him doing, if he didn't actually rise from the dead, then do whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. I mean, anything is on the table. And that may, for a moment, sound sort of attractive to you, but I don't think you really want to live in a world like that where anything is on the table. But if he was raised, 
then that's the best message ever. And that's the best news ever. Because it means that God hasn't given up on this world that rejected Him. It means that He loved this world so much that He gave His only Son. That whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, if, if you're here and you're a Christian this morning, I just want to ask you, how seriously do you take the fact that in the Bible you have a message from God? And how seriously do you take the fact that when you sit under the preaching of the word, whether it's at your church or whether it's at RUF, that to the extent that that preached word matches up with this written word, you're hearing a message from God. Uh, Annie Dillard once wrote about worship and she was talking about ladies wearing little straw hats to worship and she said, instead, we should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews because we're coming into the presence of God to hear a word from God. Uh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what do, you, what do you do with a claim like that? That this message is from God. It's a pretty strong claim. Um, I, I'd suggest this. What would you do if, if you were suffering from cancer and found out a world-renowned team of doctors said they had found a cure for cancer? Would you just kind of go, that sounds good. hope they work that out. No, you would, you would want to check into that. You would want to find out about that. You want to investigate to see whether or not that is true. And so I would encourage you, if you're not sure about this, to... Don't just go, well, maybe it is, maybe it's not, but to actually investigate the Bible. Check it out. Sit down and read it with someone who kind of knows their way around in it. And think especially about the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Because if it didn't happen, then okay, none of this matters. And go, go do what you want. But if he, if he was raised, then everything matters. And there's nothing left for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. The nature of this message is that it's a message from God. Now secondly, I want to think about the necessity of the message. The second half of these verses, I imagine, struck you kind of funny as we read them. Because it sounds like Paul's on some kind of Mel Gibson drunken anti-Semitic rant here. Uh, he, he says the Jews killed Jesus and they killed the prophets and they drove us out and they oppose all mankind and God's wrath is upon them. And it's one of those passages that you take out of, if you take out of context from the rest of the Bible, can really be used in very harmful ways. And so let me say, Paul was not anti-Jewish. Uh, Paul was a Jew. In fact, he had great love for his fellow Jews. He says this in Romans 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He loved his fellow Jews. He wanted, he wanted them to see that this Jesus who had come was the Messiah that they had been longing for for years and years. He had good news for them. So what's this about in 1 Thessalonians then? Why is he so worked up? He's angry with the particular Jews that are hindering him from proclaiming this message about Jesus to the Gentiles. He says uh, here toward the bottom, 
verse, what is this? It's time for the reading glasses. Verse 18, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. I think it's verse 16, that they might be saved. Definitely time for the reading glasses. He's saying they're, they're, pre- they're preventing us from delivering this message of salvation. Um, Juneteenth, I don't know if you heard of Juneteenth. It's a celebration that commemorates each year the end of slavery in the United States. Uh, It started in Texas, and it's celebrated on June 19th because that's the day in 1865 that the slaves in Texas found out that they had been freed, even though the Emancipation Proclamation had been issued two and a half years earlier. Now, why did it take them so long to get... The news, well, news traveled slowly in those days, so there's that factor. And then some people said there were rumors that the people bringing the news had been murdered so that the the word wouldn't get there. But it's more likely, historians say, that the Texas slaveholders simply didn't tell them until two and a half years later when Union soldiers rode up and informed the slaves for them. Hey, you you are free. You've been free, but all that time, the slaveholders have been standing in the way of that message. Uh, Imagine if you had a a cure for Ebola that you were trying to take to another country and U.S. Customs was standing in your way of getting that cure to them. Or if you had friends who were in the path of a hurricane and they didn't know about it and you had a way to get that message to them, but somebody was standing in your way, you'd be furious. The Ebola victim needs the, the message, needs the medicine to be cured. Your family member needs to get the message so they can get out of the way of the hurricane. The slaves need to hear the message so that they can be free. The Gentiles need to hear the message of the gospel so that they can be saved. It's a necessary message. They can't be rescued or healed or freed without this message. Paul is saying the Gentiles have to get this message if they're going to be saved. And these Jews are standing in the way of us getting them that message. Uh, Acts chapter 4. This is what Peter says about Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they may be saved. The gospel is a necessary message. It's necessary for salvation. Now, that's one of the the hard teachings of of Christianity, and that's one you may have to wrestle with. Um, You may feel like the, the young lady who said, how could there just be one true religion? It's arrogant to say your religion is superior and try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. And you know, if, if you have friends or loved ones from different religious backgrounds, you kind of feel the weight of that. Well, my Hindu friends feel like pretty good people. Why, why can't their way just work for them? But if you find yourself agreeing then with the sentiment of this young woman, I want you to notice what she's actually saying. She says, isn't it arrogant to say that your religion is superior and to try to convert other people to it? But isn't that what she's doing? It's exactly what she's doing. She's saying her religious views that all religions 
are equally valid is a superior view and you need to agree with me. And so she's trying to convert people to her faith-based view. We all do this. It's, it's, it's actually unavoidable. We all have fundamental faith commitments um, underlying our beliefs. And so here's a question then. Tim Keller puts it this way. Which fundamental faith commitments will lead their believers to be the most loving and receptive to those with whom they differ? Which set of unavoidably exclusive beliefs will lead us to humble, peace-loving behavior? The gospel will. The gospel will. The gospel says, because the gospel says that we aren't any better than other people. We weren't saved because we were better. We weren't saved because we were intelligent. We were saved because of our good works. We were simply saved by the grace of God. And so the the gospel is a necessary message. And yes, it's also an exclusive message. But when you understand it rightly, it doesn't make you arrogant. It makes you incredibly humble and hopeful and gracious with other people. Uh, This gospel, Paul says, is a message from God. And it is a necessary message. And then he shows finally how it's a powerful message. He says in verse 13 that this word of God is at work in you. And then in verse 14, the reason he believes this, he says, because you became imitators of other churches, even when it brought suffering into your life. This message of the Bible, and the central message of the Bible being the gospel, has the power to change everything about your life. Absolutely everything. It gives you purpose. It helps you to understand the nature of reality. It gives you the resources you need to to go through suffering with joy. It sustains people through years of pain. It gives us the ability to face death with courage. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German minister who was arrested because he was part of the plot to overthrow and even assassinate Hitler. And they were taking him away from his cell to execute him. And he turned to his cellmate and he said, this is the end. But for me, it is the beginning of life. The the gospel changes everything. This message that we're accepted by God in Christ uh, because of what Christ has done and not because of our performance frees us from living for for, for the applause. The gospel frees us from the guilt and the shame of things that we have done and and things that have been done to us. Do you understand how powerful this message is? I heard the story this past week of a man named Muhammad who, he lived in Somalia and it was 1981. Things were relatively peaceful then, although there was a, a dictator and a more communist type government. He was managing a Pepsi plant Um, He was recently married to the love of his life. He was kind of on top of the world. And he wrote a letter critical of the government. And so in the middle of the night, soldiers showed up and they, they, they took him away. And they threw him into a prison and he was sentenced to life in solitary confinement for writing a letter critical of the government. He lived in a a six by six cell. And so he would take two steps and then turn around, and then go this way and turn around. That was, that was his 
existence. There was a, the, the toilet was a hole in the ground, and he said cockroaches would come running out of it and flying out with excrement all over them. But he says the thing that really bugged him in the midst of all of that was that he didn't know what had happened to his wife. Was she alive? Was she going to divorce him? The government was trying to get wives to divorce um, their husbands if they were political prisoners. And then he began to think, why hasn't she visited me? And he knew she couldn't visit him, but he was still angry because she hadn't visited him. And he said he was beginning to worry that he was losing his mind and that the fear of going crazy was actually causing him to go crazy. Uh, there was a rule there that you couldn't talk to other inmates, and there were eight cells, all in, guys were all in solitary confinement. And he said one day he heard a knock on his cell wall. And someone whispered through the wall, learn ABC. Learn ABC. And someone in that group of prisoners had developed a code for the letters of their alphabet. And they were knocking out messages one letter at a time on those cell walls. Well, it turns out that the prisoner that was knocking the message to him was a friend of him. It was actually a doctor who diagnosed Muhammad there in the cell with acute anxiety. You think, I probably could have made that diagnosis. But, but anyway, one day this, this doctor um, is summoned to the warden's office. And when they first came in, they brought belongings with them, but they had never been able to, to have any of their belongings. And the warden said, you can get a change of clothes. And it was the first time in two years he had had a change of clothes. And he had some books in the bag. And he, he was like, I'm gonna, i got to ask. He said, can I, can I take one of these books? And the warden said, yeah. And so he reached for the, the fattest book he could find. And it wasn't the Bible. That would be too perfect an illustration. But he reached, he reached for the fattest book that he could find. And it was Anna Karenina uh, by Leo Tolstoy. And the version that he had was 800 pages long. And he was just going to take it back to his cell and, and read this book to kind of help him pass the time. And then he said, why don't I try to help Muhammad? Why don't I read this book to him? And so he wrapped his hand in a t-shirt or something because this was going to be a lot of tapping. Uh, and so he read Anna Karenina to him, 800 pages, with 2 million letters, one letter at a time. Through that cell wall. Now you got you got a little bit about the story. Uh, Anna in the book is Russian nobility. Uh, she's married to an older man, but she falls in love with a young soldier. Uh, she winds up she winds up getting pregnant, but instead of keeping it quiet, she announces to everybody that she's pregnant and she's in love with this guy, and it scandalizes everyone. And so the Russian nobility basically shun her and isolate her while the soldier gets to go on with his life. And she wrestles with the thought, if he loves me, why doesn't he come and rescue me? And Muhammad's like, that's exactly the way I feel. If she loves me, why doesn't she come and rescue me? 750 pages in, two months into the book, uh, Anna is at the train station and she's trying to decide whether to step in front of a train or not and, and end her life. And Muhammad starts crying but it's not because he wants to step in front of a train and end his life. He starts crying because something has switched in his head. And suddenly, instead of feeling self-pity for himself, he starts feeling self-pity for his wife. 
And he realizes he hadn't thought about how she feels about this at all. And what it's been like for her to have her husband suffer in prison. And he said that story like completely rewired him. And how he was thinking about everything. And he credited it with keeping him alive while he was in prison. Fast forward. He's in there 10 years. He gets out. He finds his wife in a refugee camp in Germany. And she runs to hug him. And like this is like the, the fairy tale ending, right? And he, he said he's like, he felt nothing. And all he can do is to reach out his hand to, to shake her hand. It's like, he's just like it, it wasn't there anymore after 10 years. And he sat and he thought, like, what, what am I supposed to do here? And suddenly he thought of a character in Anna Karenina. And he thought of a guy named Levin who was always indecisive. He was in love and he got married, but he wasn't sure if he was a good husband, if he should stay married, if he could really be a good father. He had doubts about his faith. He had doubts about everything. But Levin decided, you know what, I need to just forget about all these feelings and just do the right thing. And Muhammad said to himself, I'm Levin, and I've got all these messed up feelings. And so what I need to do right now is simply to do the right thing. And so they... They did live happily ever after. But just think about that story for a minute. There's there's a message from a book tapped out a word at a time, a message that saved somebody's life, a message that began to shape how he thought about everything, a message that led him to do the right thing, even when he didn't feel like doing it. Now, I tell that story Because that's just kind of a cool story. But I tell that story also because I think we're a lot like Muhammad. We're trapped in our own prisons of sin and guilt and shame and idolatry. And Almighty God uses His Word to tap, 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 tap the message of the Gospel onto the to to, to our hearts. And it, it breaks through the prison walls of our hearts. He taps until it breaks through to us. And it frees us. And it sustains us. And it completely rewires the way that we think about everything. It begins to shape every decision that we make. Look, if, if Anna Karenina can shape the life of Muhammad then you better believe that the Word of God is powerful enough to set you free and to sustain you and to shape the course of your entire life. It can utterly transform your life and your family's life and your children's lives. So the question for you is, you, is do you believe this message about Jesus? And if you do, If you believe this is a necessary and powerful word from God, why wouldn't you read it? And why wouldn't you memorize it? And why wouldn't you teach it to your children? And why wouldn't you have them to memorize it? And why wouldn't you share it with your friends? Is it the word of God or not? Is it necessary or not? Is it powerful or not? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would see the reality that this is your word. And it is a necessary word. And it is a powerful word. And it has the power to save us 
and to release us and to bring forgiveness to us. Help us to see this and help us to treat it accordingly. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.